Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast. Today we're going to talk about how kindness and self-compassion actually makes it more likely that you will change those habits that you think actually aren't serving you so well. And to my aid, I've got an expert on this subject, Shara Isadi. Sharu is a behavioral change specialist, speaker and best-selling author. Her approach is influenced by the experience that she gained working in the addiction treatment field. She has since then been dedicated to highlighting what those in long-term recovery from substance misuse can teach the general population about motivation, self-compassion and self-awareness. She runs sell-out habit change workshops and is regularly asked to speak publicly on behavioral change, mental health, addiction, self-esteem, motivation and well-being. Shara's first book, The Kindness Method, was released in June 2018. She was named as one of Red Magazine's Smart Women of 2018 and selected for Marie Claire's 2019 Verified Power with Purpose list. And in November 2019, she was given the Thought Leader of the Year Award at House of Lords. Her second book, The Last Diet, was published in the UK in 2019 and the US in 2020. And with such an introduction, you might feel a little bit intimidated already. Just got such a resume. But actually... This interview, it was so down to earth. Shara shared so many insights and tips with lots of vulnerability and honesty. As you will hear in this episode, she has both lived experience as well as expertise of working with people struggling with habit change. And in the episode, we focused a lot around having a kinder attitude towards your body and thinking if you want to get healthier, fitter, stronger, or even if you want to lose weight, It is not achieved by being unkind to yourself. It is not achieved through self-flagellation, making yourself go on runs or counting calories. Actually, we're talking a lot about how the diets that we have today in diet culture is about making you small. So I do hope that you'll find this episode helpful in addressing how having a different way of talking to yourself is more likely to get you towards your goals. So let's dive in, and I'm very pleased to have Sharu Isadi with me. So welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast. I'm really, really excited to have this conversation today about how we can have a gentler lens on behavioral change. So welcome to my guest. Sharu, I'm really, really pleased to have you here. Let's get you introduced. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm a behavioral change specialist, um, and I've come from working in addiction treatment and I learned there that there were a lot of tools that could be used by the general population to change day-to-day habits, day-to-day unwanted habits. And a lot of the evidence base being used around behavioral change and addiction was um, relevant to a lot of us um, in helping us to become more adaptable, helping us to know ourselves better, to like ourselves more, to understand our patterns better, 
and so I just my my mission really is to hand over all the tools that I've seen to be helpful both in my professional and personal life and help people and empower people to change habits on their own and really to convince people that self-compassion is key to sustained behavioral change. And I think that's a really interesting point there around how self-compassion can help us change. What made you think of that? You know, I'm kind of thinking about how you created the kindness method. How come that you brought kindness and compassion into a method which was about changing our habits? Because I saw that that was the thread that ran through the people who seemed to be making the most profound changes. I saw that a general shift towards having more compassion for oneself, treating oneself as a loved one, as a friend in every aspect of your life, seemed to be an incredibly effective thing and when it when it came to shifts because a lot of the time the conversations we have with ourselves when we need to have more impulse control or we need to push through the temptation to default onto the comfortable status quo and when actually we want to make a change the conversation we need to be having with ourselves at that point is one that is kind understanding compassionate curious and yet so often um, when we're in those we're in those make or break moments we speak to ourselves in quite the opposite manner. So whilst it's nice to be nice, and I wish we all cared about ourselves more and everything, in the context of habit change specifically, I, I believe wholeheartedly that treating ourselves with kindness is key to achieving goals. Mm, and you've seen that personally as well in your own journey, that for those of you who are not you know, following you on Instagram uh, or have read your books, it's a very powerful journey of the, the weight loss and healthy kind of attitude towards your body that you've had. Do you mind telling the listeners a bit more about that? Not at all, not at all. Yeah, during, I mean, most of my adult life and actually some of my child life, I was um, desperately trying to, to lose weight, going on a number of diets, having all sorts of things, procedures done and reversed and taking all sorts of supplements and just trying every possible way I could to change the size of my body. And as a result, fluctuating wildly and developing a binge eating disorder, essentially. Mm. And I found that nothing was really helping because I was always going from this place of I'm weak, there's something wrong with me. Once I sort out my weight, I'll be able to sort out the rest of my life. I can take my life off hold. I can do all those things that I only associate slim people to do. I will uh, deprive myself of self-care until I have a body that's worthy of self-care. And I learned working in addiction that the self-belief that you need to do something difficult like change an ingrained behavior is helped enormously by actually enjoying your life and actually starting to treat yourself as though the goal itself doesn't matter and that you are unconditionally deserving of care in every possible way. And so when I started actually behaving as though it didn't matter whether or not I did lose weight, what I found was this incredible surge in self-esteem and self-belief that came from a much more substantial, substantive place. And I noticed that I was able to lose weight more effectively and manage my weight more intuitively than I ever have before because, you know, I, I trusted myself more. I cared about myself more in every possible way. I didn't associate things with like exercise or drinking enough water or eating fruit with being on a sort of a regime, a punitive remedial regime. And I just saw it as part of a a larger exercise in caring more about my experience of life. And um, that helped a lot. So yeah, compassion, self-compassion, the lessons I've learned 
whilst I'm delighted to be able to hand over evidence-based things and people like that I've worked in addiction and stuff, if I'm perfectly honest, the real test was has has and will always be the ongoing test that I'm doing. <laughs> and yeah, it's absolutely dem- demonstrated that it works because I no longer behave that way towards my body. I no longer fluctuate dramatically. I mean, obviously I fluctuate, I'm a human woman, but not dramatically and not because I'm being horrible to myself. So the fluctuations are, are more about what's normal and human and to be expected and to be tolerated. Uh, and I guess, especially in such hard times that we've currently finding ourselves in with the pandemic, where weight has been impacted by a lot of us, you know, when our hormones fluctuate in the month, when we are more or less bloated, when we are more or less stressed out in our life, these are normal fluctuations. But I guess what you're describing is that you got out of that that extreme, the yo-yo up and down from almost like a passionate unkindness to your body, that you were being punitive and trying to kind of force a regime on yourself, that that worked far less effectively than when you stopped kind of attaching worth to your weight, that the worth was about you being a worthwhile human and not that there being a particular number on the scales. That's exactly correct. And I think also you don't, we don't know why people lose and gain weight. Even there, there's an assumption mm. sometimes that, oh, you know, your weight has fluctuated during lockdown. Maybe it's because you're eating more healthy food. Maybe, you know, mm. I've had times when I was very, very, very slim and far more malnourished than when I was obese. Mm, absolutely. And I see that a lot in my clients as well, where, you know, off to say breastfeeding or, you know, a period of long sleep deprivation, they lost weight. And then that's actually not a healthy weight loss. That's just you've been hollowed out in a, in a way. Yeah, and yet Western society will continue to applaud, especially women, mm. for being slimmer. And having looked out of both, you know, I'm looking out of the same eyes regardless of my size. If there's not a mirror in front of me, mm. I can't tell you what exact size I am at any given point. And I, I can tell you that that's a tough one to get to internalize because of how much we've associated you know, it's it's when I was doing the most unhealthy things to be slim that I was getting the most validation. Mm, yes, it's so common. Yeah. And what kind of validation did you receive from people around you that, that fed this kind of unhealthy attitude towards your body? Oh, I mean, the one that I used to hate was keep it up. Keep up the good work. You look great. Oh, sometimes, oh gosh, yeah, remembering now. Sometimes people used to describe me to other people who hadn't met me before when I was slim and they'd say, oh gosh, you can't, you won't believe how much weight she's lost. She was massive. She could barely this. She could barely that. Like me losing weight had fixed all these problems that I didn't know, some of which I didn't know I had, had had undone judgments that I didn't realize were targeted at me or, you know, were about me. And so that was quite, that was quite disheartening and people yeah and I mean the opposite sex you know people would say things like yeah but that's because you're more confident now but the fact is I wasn't that much more confident because I hadn't worked on Mm. anything else if anything now I was worrying about loose skin and feeling uncomfortable in a body that I didn't recognize and wasn't used to and I was withholding access to my main comfort which was food and when you take you know and that Mm. was I was just I decided that food was bad and my body was bad and I had to be punished and deprived so that wasn't really a place for me to feel like I was filled with self-esteem anyway. But if you ask the people around me, maybe not those who were really close to me and really cared for me, they probably knew that this wasn't this wasn't the best. But yeah, especially meeting new people, it was such a new experience of the world. 
how I was treated and the conversations people would have in front of me, all of a sudden I realized that people speak about all sorts of things in front of you when they think that you're not worried about your weight. And it was just a different experience of the world I found. But then I also had huge extremes in weight. I think it's important to kind of remember that people who are losing one or two stone here and there, they're not, um, I don't imagine they're experiencing such a different world. You lost as much as eight stone, I believe. Yeah, but you know what? I keep losing track because I don't weigh myself now. And yeah, when I wrote the book, that was how much when we sat down and did the maths. But for me, it was less about the weight loss in the end. I knew I could lose weight. I know I could lose more weight than I'm at now. What, I, what eluded me was how I was going to enjoy my life and eat and still manage mm. a weight that I was happy with, my sort of healthy, happy weight, whatever that is for me. For me, it's more of a size than a weight, if I'm honest. Mm. You know, I'm sort of a size 13, I always say. And that wasn't the mission. The eight, you know, the eight stone thing, yes, it's absolutely true and it's part of the process, but I'd lost that much weight before. I'd lost more than that before and gained it all back before. Mm. So the weight loss itself wasn't really the thing. It was, how am I going to manage this? How am I going to feel empowered around my food choices? How am I going to actually like my body? Because losing weight isn't changing my behaviors and it's not making me like my body. Um, and that was, mm. that was the real mission. And I think that's the real success. And I think that's very powerful. That's sort of why I asked you about the, you know, the exact number, because I think there's so much shock value around this, say. Eh? how much weight I lost or and especially in a very short period of time you know I lost a gazillion stone in in three days um, and I think that's the bit that we need to really look out for because it drives this all or nothing the pressure to do it very quickly whereas you know weight loss is done very very quickly has those unintended effects that you described that we don't recognize the body it changes our identity people around us can be really unhelpful in the context and environment around us of how they interact with our body and our, and our change. But the real powerful thing for your mental well-being and your, and your healthy kind of attitude around your body had nothing to do with the kilos or the stone. I'm more into the metric, so I don't really know how much eight stone is, if I'm really honest. <laughs> but I think that's where it's so powerful to, to read your story, that it's how you related to yourself differently, building a, a happy, healthy body rather than kind of fighting that internal war with yourself to become slim, that the slimness was not the aim and the mission. No, and I think that's important too, because there are people who would have had the same sort of disordered eating patterns as me, and the byproduct of recovering from them would have been gained weight. Mm. It just so happens that I was probably, you know, I have a certain type of body, maybe I was binging more than I was restricting, maybe I was you know, maybe I, I saw more, more value in the binging, in the feeling full. Maybe I was seeking comfort. You know, there's just all sorts of reasons why this is about the behaviors, not the weight. Mm. The shift in weight becomes a natural byproduct of learning not to abuse yourself with food and learning to treat food as the joy that it is and not abuse yourself about having consumed food. And so for me, when I stopped doing those things, I lost weight because it turned out that the reason I was gaining unwanted weight was almost entirely because of how much you know, objectively unhealthy food I was putting in my body and why I was putting it in my body. And it was to harm. It was to isolate. It was to punish. So when I stopped doing that, the natural byproduct became weight loss. And then, of course, I exercised more and all those things that, you know, the practicalities. But there'll be other people who, when they start harming, punishing, neglecting their bodies with food, will gain weight. And that will be their definition. 
So that's where mm. it doesn't, the weight loss bit doesn't really matter as much as the behavioral shift thing and the recovery from this constant all day obsession about food and our bodies and the assumption that everyone's judging us in the same way. So it's a changing both the function that the food has for you from, from punishment to joy and the function that your body has from you from being you know up for external admiration to actually serving you in a healthy way so that you can do things with your body and I guess that could be a shift for someone who uh, who struggles with with either extreme overweight or extreme underweight that our body is not healthy enough to carry us yeah I think it's just about every now and then looking at why we do the things we do and which crutches we're Mm. using and what our toolkit is filled with my toolkit was filled with I mean, if it came, if we take the judgment out of it, we're looking at how I dealt with stress, anxiety, boredom, and all of those was the same thing, overeating to the point of discomfort, Mm. neglecting basic health needs, unless I was on a mission to lose weight. So Mm. if you saw me drinking loads of water, you could know that I was on a diet. If you saw me even going for a walk, you'd know that I was on a diet. And if I wasn't, you know, this sort of perfectionism compounded that to some extent, this all or nothing catastrophizing. If I'm not going to do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it at all. And when I wasn't doing it at all, Mm. it wasn't that I was just going back to this reset. I was causing some real damage because of course there was always this elusive day when you would go back to perfection or you could always hope that one day you would be the sort of person who would find, who would just finally do this. And then the fact that you had changed would be enough to make you stay changed, which I think is another issue a lot of the time is that, you know, I think diet diets get a bad rap. There's a lot of people who, like myself, start going on diets so early on, they don't even know what to eat, even if we call it a healthy way of eating and not a diet. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, it can also be seen as an exercise of just saying, like, what am I putting in my body in general? How am I treating my body in general? Do, do I want to do a bit of research into that? Because I'm going to be eating for the rest of my life. And I found that that shift was a lot more empowering than what can't I eat? Mm. What shouldn't I eat? What can't I control myself around? That wasn't really, um, didn't make me believe in myself in other areas, put it that way. So this issue of perfectionism has really been, I guess it's a, a crutch to lean on. That's also been something that's tripped you over. What, what ways do you think perfectionism has made it really difficult for you? Well, I think... When perfectionism, when perfectionism is combined with an underestimation of the difficulty of change, of behavioral change, then it can be a recipe for disaster because what it lends itself to is this all or nothing catastrophizing mentality, which, for example, the diet industry really is fueled on, which is you follow these mm-hmm. guidelines and whilst you're not following them, you're off grid, you're off track, you've got to wait until Monday, you've got to wait until New Year's Eve or Whatever else it is, I just think it's very disempowering. And those two things can come together and, yeah, create an environment where a blip can turn into a catastrophe just because of what you've told yourself about that blip or that otherwise temporary deviation from a perfectly good plan can spiral into, you know, using jargon for me as an entire relapse where you're back where you started, mm-hmm. all because of how you framed that one deviation. If you reframed the deviation as a necessary challenge or test that you're going to have to learn to get through and actually get excited about the times when plans don't go to plan, then you can start unraveling a bit of the nonsense that comes with perfectionism in that sense, because it is a false economy a lot of the time. You know, people will say to me, I put on a couple of pounds, so I must not have been doing the plan properly, the diet that someone gave me properly. 
So until I can sit down and work out how I'm going to do it perfectly, I'm going to eat everything in the house, you know, and you kind of think, Mm. gosh, that's so counterintuitive. And the thing is, I would have done exactly the same thing. And that's why I think it comes down to common sense. Nothing that I've ever written or said is in any way disputed because it's it's common. It's just coming back to the basics. If you would never advise your child or your friend if they were on track with a plan but hadn't done one day perfectly, you wouldn't tell them to throw in the towel and start on Monday. You tell them it was a blip and they, they're very capable and that it would be completely counterproductive to make the situation worse just because you hadn't done it exactly how you intended to do it. The other thing is our plans will not go to plan. We're all very good at planning meticulously. It is impossible to preempt all the possible triggers, all the possible risks. Your plans will simply not always go to plan. So you need to trust yourself more than your plan. And if yourself is in this all or nothing perfectionism mentality, then, yeah, that could unfortunately derail your plans pretty quickly. Mm, Because you're not allowing for any mistakes or any any humanity, any kind of blips or, or, or relapse is not kind of allowed into the the bigger plan and I think you're right that that pressure that comes from the diet industry or these you know follow these simple steps and if you're not doing it perfectly then you might as well not do it at all that is a a very common thing that I see in my clients as well and I'm wondering for, for you as a kind of as a specialist in helping people with behavioral change what do you see people getting stuck with preventing them from moving forward with the behavioral change is there any themes or patterns you've seen yeah i think one thing is doing things to change that you can't do to stay changed i think that's a failure Mm -hmm. a failure waiting to happen sometimes because especially with diets you know you have this activation phase and then this maintenance phase and it's like well the activation phase tends to be about getting excited about losing heaps of weight doing stuff that you can't see yourself doing realistically long term and i guess we just make the mistake of thinking that having changed and the rewards of having changed will be enough to keep us changed. But the fact is, changing your size doesn't change your relationship with food. They're two separate things altogether. Um, using that as an example, but it would be the same with alcohol or any any habit of consumption, or indeed any fitness plan, anything like that, where you want that quick win, um, and then we can become much more disillusioned. So I think that's a bit of a false economy when we front load that kind of novelty. The other thing I would say is a lot of the time when people want to change, they focus on what's wrong with their habits. You know, why, if I know all these negatives, am I not changing? Um, what's wrong with me? And I think a lot of the time it's about shifting and saying, there's nothing wrong with you. You've developed a habit for a reason. Now let's sit and work out what that reason is and whether it's still of use to you. How is it serving you? What are the pros of this habit? Because what can happen then is that you can identify a sort of to find list of other coping strategies. If you identify that a glass of wine at the end of the day is helping you de-stress and it's helping you to punctuate the end of a long day, fine. What else helps you do those those things? Is it possible that before you have a glass of wine, you could impose a bath? You can impose a 10-minute walk. Rather than demonizing these bad behaviors, thinking that you're bad and that the behavior is bad, look at the behavior as something, as a friend that's doing something for you, but you're overly dependent on that friend or you'd like to change the boundaries up a bit. But up to this point, I think a lot of the time thinking, this is bad and I'm bad, ends up making you feel weak and not as smart as you are for continuing to do things the way they are when actually they tend to hold a value of some kind. The now problematic habit at one point may well have been a solution. Mm. The other thing I think a lot of the time is that people put their lives on hold, as I mentioned earlier. People deprive themselves of joy and self-care 
And they say, when I've achieved this goal, I will be worthy of doing those things. I will be, I will do those things for myself. Uh, I think that's the wrong way around. I think that when you feel good and you feel taken care of, then you're more likely to have the, I call it grit or impulse control or resilience or whatever it is to push through in those moments where you don't want to. If you think about the times when you feel the most able to do difficult things, it's not the times when you're depleted and exhausted. It's the times when you're empowered and nourished and there's connection and there's, you're enjoying your life. So I think it's about taking enjoyment of your life off hold and realizing that you're allowed to enjoy your life right now. Mm-hmm. So that's not conditional upon you haven't achieved these goals. That is, you know, that joy is what happens as you're on the progress, you know, on the journey towards those goals. You're still worthy of enjoyment as you are, whatever size whatever health yeah you're always going to be in the process of trying to achieve a goal so you can't turn on and off whether you like yourself accordingly and it just so happens that acting as though you like yourself starts to become of value Mm. when you realize how much more quickly it gets goals done and then liking yourself as a as an idea and continuing to invest in yourself in that compassionate curious way becomes a far more compelling it becomes far more than just being about personal development or a general interest in psychology or improvement it becomes about a you know an incredibly effective tool for achieving goals and and creating sustained behavioral change mm. because if you can't sustain it beyond that magical activation phase where you get quick results you you might feel better if you can't sustain it that's where you get back to those yo-yo the extremes that you described earlier um if you don't look at what's the function that this behavior has held for me and is that what you experienced where when you stripped away your your comforting mechanism, when you stripped away the food without having understood what to give yourself instead in a compassionate way, is that where where you kind of think about with your clients of how I can provide them the comfort in a different way? Yes, but also how I can reduce their requirement for the comfort and whether they can sometimes choose to do absolutely nothing and to sit through the discomfort and watch their capacity to self-regulate. So often there is very little space between us wanting to do something and actually following through with it. And this sort of frictionless tech environment that we live in doesn't help. And I think that more than anything, the best thing you can do sometimes is nothing to demonstrate that you will come out unscathed. Mm. And it's extraordinary now how quickly we will reach for something to soothe or indeed to just simply change how we Mm. feel. I think a lot of the time people are really confused. They'll say things like, why would I do this behavior after it? I don't even feel better. And the, it's, it isn't that you're trying to feel better, it's that you're trying to feel different. It's an avoidance, an escape mechanism to not have to feel what you're feeling. Exactly. Whereas if you give yourself a few goes, you'll self-regulate. It'll pass. The urge will pass. The craving mm. will pass. Um, it will pass mm. just as everything else does. Yeah. And unfortunately, the good things pass as well. So we can't hold on to them any more than we can chase away the, the negatives. It's just, it's just waves of feelings. So I think that's very helpful to consider in today's modern society as well, where we actually aren't having to sit with things for very long. I mean, I saw a post on Instagram today about back in the day when we used to burn CDs and there's someone said, what does it mean to burn a CD? Um, And not kind of, you know, the age that you and I are at where we, you know, we grew up with, I don't know, dial up modems and and being able to sit and wait for your cassette tape to be finished, like all of these things that today we don't have to. There's much more of an instant gratification in modern society. Do you think that has any impact? And we think compared to 
the work around change methods, say, 10 years ago or 15, 20 years ago, pre-smartphones, pre-all this modern technology, do you think that makes any difference of the kind of gratification and struggles to sit with discomfort? Yeah, I think it's much easier to distract ourselves. I don't think it helps. I'm often um, reluctant to poo-poo tech because I just see the enormous ways that it's helped as well. But I, Mm. yes, I do. I think that what it's done is it has... It's made us all behave a little bit more like the desire to do something is a command as opposed to an alert. You know, mm. we're obeying a desire far more quickly than I think we would have done before. I always use the example of Amazon. You know, if I see a bottle of something that I want, I can open my phone by just looking at my phone. I don't even need to press any buttons. I can press. I can just press one thing and that Amazon delivery will be at my house tomorrow. Mm. And that's before I've had a time to think, do I need this? Can I afford it? Am I going to get paid? Do I already have one? Can I borrow one from someone else? Didn't even think of those things. Before I know it, it's in my house. And that's what I'm used to. Then if I want to return it, it becomes a process that is has plenty of friction in it. I have to print this label. Mm. I have to write in prose what the problem is, all sorts of things. And I think the onus is on us now to impose that friction, to impose those speed bumps so that we don't accidentally apply the same sort of immediate trigger from stimulus thinking that immediately turns into an action. Yeah, I think it's it, it's on us to spread that out a little bit. And I think it's also on us to make it easier to engage in the habits that we don't want, that we want to be engaging in and harder to engage in the ones that we don't. So for example, I, I always say I, I, I keep my yoga mat in my kitchen because I am mm. so frequently making tea or coffee. And I keep my phone in the other room if I want to really sit and watch a documentary or a film or something. These tiny little tweaks throughout your day, that often people think that we have these very like deeply rooted issues that we need to deal with. And sometimes it's just a matter of put this in front of you and get that out of your sight <laughs> just for the next couple of yeah. hours and notice that you come out unscathed notice with curiosity mm. how that how that feels whether it's you know whether it's just check-ins here and there I think we should look at all these things as experiments very often the problem becomes that we think oh if I do this how am I going to do it forever you know if I stop mm. drinking uh, how am I going to not drink forever and it's like why don't you stop for a week and see how you feel you know just experiment yeah and it's not as catastrophic as you think if you put your phone away for two hours in the next room uh, like you're saying, it's that all or nothing. That it doesn't have to be forever. It doesn't have to be such a big goal. Because if it's if it's that massive, it's unsurmountable, isn't it? It's hard to then think, well, how will I manage to do that? If you said to someone, now you will do daily yoga for the rest of your life, you're like, no, no. How do I even roll out the mat? So we have to start with where you're at. And I, I love those quick tips of the sort of almost put this in front of you and that away from you. Can you think of any other quick tips like that? Because I think the listeners like something that is very actionable and simple rather than big regime that takes more energy when you're already overwhelmed can you think of anything else that'd be kind of little quick tools i think be aware of the admin involved in the tasks that you actually do enjoy like for example if you know that you like going for a swim in the morning make sure that everything you need around that swim whether it's the showering the phone charger the whatever it is so often people think i'm just going to wake up and i'll do that thing i said i would do and it ends up being the smallest little speed bump in the process like oh i didn't you know, I didn't manage to uh, pack something waterproof and it's raining outside. Create the mm. path of least resistance for yourself, assuming that you're not going to want to do it, even if it's good for you. 
make it as compelling mm. as possible, as easy as possible. I used to go to sleep in my gym gear. That is clever. I used to just that go to sleep in my gym gear and just get up and just say, all you have to do is get out of this building and after that, everything else will take care of itself. And it always did. You don't leave the building and then come back in and get into bed, right? So I just told myself, just mm. make it, all you need to focus on is making it as easy as humanly possible for you to transport yourself from this bed to the outside of this building. And after that, everything else is choice by choice in the direction of you taking care of yourself. Trust yourself. But if I had thought, oh gosh, now I have to get up and get dressed and then the shower and I haven't packed my bag and I have to, it's raining and it's still dark, then I would have no, there's just no way I would have done it. So biteable chunks and make that first chunk something that, that you have accommodated, that you've made easier for yourself. So getting some of the resistances away, and it's, it's not about the sort of no excuses language and talk around it. It's much more about a positive, encouraging talk around it. Say, actually, what do I need to be able to make myself able to go to the gym tomorrow? Well, having the, the bag packed and ready by the door, um, all of these things that could help you almost like make the journey smoother. Is that sort of the, the idea that you're thinking of? Yeah, just I think the problem is, in a nutshell, people just assume that the desire to change and the plan is enough. I have mm -hmm. a plan and I know the negatives. So if I don't change, then every, then it's on me. I'm weak. And I'm trying to say, no, change is incredibly hard. Change as a, as a concept is hard. So control what you can control and assume that with all the negatives, even if you've got 100 things in your negative list and one in your positive list, if you've stayed the same, then you need to create a path of least resistance. I, for example, I, if I exercise in the morning, I'll be asleep by lunchtime. So there's no point me signing up to some 8 a.m. boot camp. You know, know yourself. And later down the line, you may find that those more ambitious plans, you know, very often people who are perfectionists like myself, a lot of the time you'll think, well, if I'm not running a marathon, what's the point? You know, if I'm not doing something exceptional, I'm going to wait until I do something exceptional. And what I'm saying is that you just making a change is hard enough try to just increase the likelihood of you finding it easy to step onto that new pathway, to step onto that new unknown, scary way. And that is really powerful because it takes some of the pressure off that the change itself is the exceptional. It doesn't have to be so much pressure to do huge things. And, and also who decides what is huge? I mean, I always think that these changes are relative to your own capacity and to where you were before. That for someone attending a gym could be a huge achievement when there is maybe shame around your body, maybe worrying about what people will think. That could be a, a huge uh, achievement in the same size of running a marathon because it's all relative to where we started from. But I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation and I know that listeners will find these little quick tips so helpful, but also the broader perspective of why do we need these little quick tips? It is not just about a surface fix that actually do need to look at the the way you relate to yourself as well. There's not just self-care for self-care's sake if self-care is driven by an unkindness. If self-care is driven by punishment, then like you said, drinking lots of water or going for that walk can actually be driven by punishment rather than a desire for you to be well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're kind of used, used to that too because it isn't you, because people rarely go voluntarily looking for a challenge. So by the time something's got out of hand or you feel like you need to make a change about it, you're kind of beating yourself up about it. Why haven't I changed already? Why didn't I change six months ago, etc.? I think it should be reframed as saying, you know, in adult life, there aren't that many opportunities when we can get that boost in self-efficacy. 
and remind ourselves of what mm. of what we're capable of. And that's what these missions are. They are not we're so bad, we must change, we're so weak. It's every now and then in my life I want to check in and see how I'm how I'm doing and I want to see how I'm managing things and what I want to change. And you know, that's all it is. It's a gentle exercise in continuing to do that. Whereas by the time if if we don't see it as that, then we don't nip things in the bud preemptively. We bury our heads in the sand and then when it comes to have having the conversation we're ashamed of the extent that things have got to and we're speaking to ourselves in 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 a way that's aligned with that mm. i think that's really powerful and as we're coming towards the end of the conversation today i want to think about one more thing before i'm going to ask you a bit more about your way of pausing and finding purpose and eventually play i wanted to ask you one final question which is thinking about how kindness affects our romantic relationships um for those of the listeners who know me by now obviously know that i'm a couples therapist as well as a psychologist so i always think a little bit about that angle as well that when we want to make changes when we kind of want to create better habits that might involve improving our relationship quality as well so how do you think that kindness impacts on our romantic relationships in terms of the, the change methods you use kindness towards ourselves you mean no, I, I, well, that I think is a very powerful part of it, because if we're not kind to ourselves, it's much harder, much harder to be kind to our partners. But I meant like in terms of if we want to change habits within our relationships, have you got any thoughts around that kind of habit change to improve our relationship quality? That might mean, you know, how are we going to start to be kinder towards our partners or do you want to you know, be less snappy with them or any changes that we want to make about how we we have been acting in our relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. I think it's more, it can be more of an identity exercise rather than thinking, I don't communicate well. I don't, you know, I don't do this for my partner or I, this is wrong with me or this is wrong with us. It's about thinking, okay, what kind of partner do I value? What kind of partner do I, what kind of partner do I value being? Kind of zooming out a little bit and thinking about the qualities that you value most and asking yourself whether your behavior is aligning with them. I value being generous. I value being forgiving. I admire people who are patient, who aren't hasty, who don't make rash decisions, who don't make decisions when they're triggered. Or, and then it becomes more of a sort of, are you living, are your values and your behaviors aligning? Hmm. And that's where I would start. Zoom it right out. So it's much less personal and a lot more about the general part, the type of partner you want to be. And if it if it helps, you know, do the same exercise for the sort of colleague you want to be, the sort of sibling you want to be. And then ask yourself, okay, which of the behaviors I'm engaging in are aligned with being that kind of person? Mm. And it's easier to see how your behavior diverges from that as well. So when you've not been the kind of person you want to be, then that's where actually we're thinking about how can I take one small step today that would be more like that? Like you're saying, kind of the, the small things, how we can put things in front of you and how can you things put things that are better to not have them inside so is there an equivalent of the yoga mat and the, the phone parking when you think about your relationships what could that be to be perfectly honest with you I don't think in good conscience I should be giving general relationship advice because I've not been in a relationship for a very long time but what I do know is that I the 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 clients who I talk to about their relationships the most and who I help with behavioral change within the context of their relationships, what ends up mm. tending to come up quite a bit is space, either giving the other person space, mm. giving themselves space for that urge to pass. 
for the urge to say things you're later going to, to regret to pass. It comes back to that same theme of imposing friction, waiting to notice that you can self-regulate, waiting to notice that maybe in a couple of hours you're going to have more capacity to reframe the situation or look upon it with more compassion. Using this acronym that we use in addiction treatment, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, taking responsibility mm. for what you're bringing into the situation and whether you're at a deficit in any of those areas and whether that honestly means that you're less you're you're not coming to this person necessarily with on an even keel or you know feeling your best when you're having this conversation so although I don't know much about relationships what I do know is the value in working on oneself and becoming more self-aware so mm. that you can at least communicate your needs and that the other person notices that you are putting things in place to make yourself a more reasonable calm positive human being Mm. And I really respect that, that you put a boundary around what you want to, what you want to give advice around and, and whatnot. And I think we, I guess someone who's watching other clients, it's almost like we do get a, a different lens on life that you don't have to experience everything yourself personally in order to see what themes show up for other people. So I do respect that you kind of said that's, you know, here to give relationship advice, but what you can see is this, this need for space. So I think that's kind of a really, really helpful thing where a lot of people don't take that pause that you just done several times today with me of thinking, actually, before you speak, what do I feel comfortable with? What can I say? What can I, what do not want to not answer within that kind of area of, of expertise or zone of genius that I have? So really, really appreciated that, Sherry. I think a lot of people I've spoken with um, have done the same and obviously that kind of goes to say who I select onto the podcast, but I really, really appreciate that in today's uh, modern day and age where we there's, there's so much need to to speak before we think. I think the conversation I had with you today has been very valuable and very vulnerable. I think you've shared a lot about your own journey and also being clear on what your your training and your expertise has shown up for you. So a lot of people don't have that level of authenticity as practitioners. It's almost like we're scared to share that we are human too, that we have suffered, that we have gone through this. Mm. Um, obviously, we can't ever have experienced everything that every single client has experienced. We're all different. But I, I really do admire that openness and Thank authenticity you. about your own journey. I think that makes it very personable and relatable for your clients as well to think of actually, she's not coming from a high horse here. She's human too. And that can really help with people who have high standards for themselves and perfectionistic pressures. Thank you. So thank you so much for doing that. I appreciate that. And the last thing I want to do together with you today is just think a little bit about, you know, with with all the things we talked about around pressures we put on ourselves and achievement and kind of trying to step away from this idea of self-worth being attached to our achievements. I'm going to ask you what I ask everyone, which is how do you then, with all the achievements that you've had, you know, we talked about your two books and you've got your, your client consultancy, all these things you've been doing around sort of treating your body better. How do you think that you switch off from achievements? How do you find rest and recovery and kind of giving yourself that permission to pause? I'm not very, I'm, I don't have any problem resting. If anything, Good. Yeah, if anything, I think it's more the case that I could... It's concerning how long I could rest for. I'm not a particularly, mm. I said this the other day and somebody didn't agree with me, but so maybe I'm wrong on this. I don't feel like a particularly ambitious sort of I'm running out of time person. And I think that the more confident I've become, and it's been a process, the more confident I've become, the more aware I am that 
even if someone came out and said what I say verbatim, no two people are bringing the same thing to the table. And I think mm. that realizing that and having true confidence in what I was bringing to the table and realizing that it was unique, that sense of urgency to constantly be working was lifted a bit. And I have come to trust that if I relax for as long as I need to, something will just come upon me. It's usually after a couple of days or maybe three or four sometimes where I just go, right, that's it. I'm fresh. I'm ready to go. And then I'm more productive than I ever have been. So I've needed to see that happen. And the first thing I do when I want to relax is I get my karaoke machine out and I sing and I love it so much. It's the only time when I'm not thinking about anything. It's my great joy. So I do that. And I also practice transcendental meditation twice a day, which I'm in and out of practice of, I should admit. <laughs> um, Not perfect. Yeah, the second one I find tricky. I find it tricky. The first one in the morning's fine, 20 minutes. I really like it. I don't, I mean, I don't want to say this too loudly in case it jinxes it, but I haven't suffered with anxiety for the unmanageable anxiety for quite a while. And I think that that's had something to do with it. That said, the second one, just 4 p.m., I'm usually in the zone. The last thing I really want to do is tear myself away and pause. So maybe having externalized that in this conversation will be, will make the difference as it so often mm. does. So yeah, that's, I, I sing and I meditate. Hmm. Well, it's, it's actually resting through playfulness and actually having fun, having joy, doing something, I guess that can be a little bit silly. I really like that. There's a lot of people on the, on the podcast have said that actually they do find their rest coming from quite, quite playful things as well. But I do wonder if you need to uh, have a little think again about the comment that someone made about you not being ambitious if you're kind of in the zone and being very creative and driven and doing things and that that moment it might be difficult to pause. Mm. This is something I do hear from a lot of um, you know, high striving or achieving people. So, And there's nothing wrong with that. I kind of talk about how ambition in itself is there's nothing wrong with that. This is a value as, as uh, much as any other value for us. The you know, value of curiosity or adventure or any of those things. So ambition is just another value. So it's just more about how we follow that value without drowning in it. Like you, you kind of talked about the all or nothing. So that has been really, really helpful. So thank you so much for giving me the time. And the final thing, and I already said final thing once, but the very final thing is that I would like you to give a little uh, kind of tangible takeaway to the listeners. And sometimes that's uh, kind of a permission we want to give the listeners or any pressure we want to take off them. What could that be? You're allowed to forgive yourself quickly is my, the takeaway. You're, you have permission to forgive yourself quickly. I think a lot of the time when we've done something mm. that we regret, we've said something we regret, we sent a reply all on an email that's ruined our lives. Just think about how quickly you'd forgive someone else. Think about the reasonable response. Not that you would be giving them, you know, molly coddling them or whatever. The reasonable, fair response would be, have you learned from it? Is there any value in beating yourself up about it endlessly? Are the names you're calling yourself, is, are you perhaps having a disproportionate response to the situation? And remember that you are allowed to forgive yourself quickly. Thank you. That's really, really powerful. So being as fair and caring towards yourself as you would with other people if they made a similar mistake. So that's a very powerful takeaway. And where can people find you if they want to follow you or get in touch with you or see more of the work that you do? Shariwazadi.com, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, emails, everywhere. I always say this, but it's true. With a name like mine, hmm. 
you're not going to struggle to find me on the internet. Um, no, that's very true. After I Googled you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, so yeah, Instagram's probably the place where I share the most. There's also two Facebook groups, one for the kindness method, one for the last diet, where people are sort of supporting each other through going through the exercises and stuff. So um, yeah, I'm all around. Fantastic. And thank you so much for coming on and having this chat with me. It's been really, really powerful. So thank you. Thank you for asking. It's been a pleasure. I'm so pleased to have spoken to Sharo Sadi about how the way we talk to ourselves really does matter in how able we're going to be at meeting our goals and making the changes for a healthier, happier lifestyle. The attitude you have to your body is rooted in the attitude you have towards yourself. So with more self-kindness and a more nurturing, more compassionate voice towards yourself, you can achieve so much more than if you keep giving yourself that shit stick that you're beating yourself up with. If you want to take a deeper dive in how to be kinder to yourself and address that inner critical voice that you have that may even sabotage any changes you're trying to make to your lifestyle and your self-care, then do take a look at my book, The Lasting Connection. All that is written about a way to develop more love and compassion for your partner is also focusing on how to develop more love and compassion for yourself. So you have eight chapters in the book focusing on how to develop more of a compassionate voice with yourself, having an inner mentor that cheers you on when you do hard things. So have a look at this book now. You can order it on Amazon under The Lasting Connection. And until I speak to you next time, do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm so that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm this episode of the pause purpose play podcast was presented by me Michaela Thomas and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk and because great work rests on having a great team This episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.